at your baby. Here's my number. Now call me, maybe. Redo. Welcome to the Arrogant Healthcare Marketing Bastards podcast for the week of September 3, 2012. This is episode 162. I am Chris Bevelo, president of Interval. We're the healthcare marketing firm that puts on the podcast. With me today are... Jackie Ritaco, account manager with Interval. And Adam Meyer, creative director with Interval. Welcome to our podcast, a forum for riffing, ranting on hot and important healthcare marketing topics, trends, and ideas, with a whole lot of other noise thrown in. I had to get that out of the way. All I heard was... <laughs> what was that? Is that Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown. Yeah. The Charlie Brown teacher. Yeah. The mom wah, or the teacher? Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, that's a lot of wah wah right there. <laughs> but for people who tune, you know, I think every week we pick up a few new listeners, and I mean that sincerely because I go out and uh, you can see people coming in that have never been in before, you know, downloading it or. People tell me that they hear me speak and then they go listen to the podcast. So you got to let them know what's going on every once in a while. Yeah. Well, welcome to anybody who's new. Mm-hmm. For every two we gain, we lose three. Yeah. For extended <laughs> intros like this. That's why we got to keep, keep the yeah. wheels turning. Wheel in the sky keeps on turning. All right. <clears throat> Let's get to it. We got some good stuff here. Um, in the news, I thought I should go through all of the speaking engagements I have coming up so that if folks are listening to this and you're anywhere near any of these, uh, perhaps we could meet. Perhaps we could have a coffee or a cocktail. Perhaps we could chat about whatever you like. So here they are. This is through November, though. Uh, there are others that are potential after this. So uh, on September 12, I will be in Orlando at the University Health System Consortium's CMO Council Annual Meeting. Follow that. So there is a there is an association of university health system. So kind of like American Hospital <laughs> Association, it's a subset of that. Uh, and they have a chief marketing officer council. So the folks that are tops in marketing, and they are getting together in Orlando. So I'll be presenting there. Shushmid, we already know about. We've killed that uh, puppy enough. Doing a, a three hour workshop with Chris Boyer on digital strategy. That's in Philadelphia, September nineteenth. Uh, September 28th, Laguna Beach for MedSeek's 2012 eHealth Council. October 5, Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin for the Whippermiss Annual Conference, one of our favorite places to go. Uh, November 2, Portland, Oregon for the Healthcare Communicators of Oregon, which is awesome because I don't think I've ever been to Portland before. And then Madison, Mississippi on November 8th for the Mississippi Hospital Association Annual Conference. So Wow. Lots of on the road again, Busy guy. like in the spring. You're, you're a speaking whore. Wow. <laughs> As opposed to a mute. That is uh, that's a harsh assessment oh my of my speaking <laughs> there. Well, you're getting around quite a bit. Is, is that how you leap to whore? Okay. Yeah. You could call me a virus or you could call me... Here's my number, like a song like that. You could call what is that called? A mem? I'm call a speaking me mem. <laughs> is it mem or memmy? <laughs> we don't know what it's called. We never did find that out. I meme. always say meme. meme. Okay, meme. There you go. 
All right. So anyway, hopefully you will be in Mississippi, Oregon, Wisconsin, California, Philadelphia, Orlando. Wow. I wonder if I'm going to like follow the trail of Mitt Romney or something. Sounds like I'm, I'm in a lot of swing states. Look at that. Florida, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania. I could influence this election. All right. Do it. So you're not, how come you should be in Florida right now speaking? Why? Oh, why would I want to do Republican national convention? I I don't think they'd have Mm me. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) I don't think so either. Okay. So one more little in the news. I just had to do this update on the, our kind of an ongoing theme for this year. The, can you sleep at night theme of how do you uh, sleep at night as a marketer? Given the fact that so much is wrong with our healthcare system. And are you, part of the problem or part of the solution, basically. And this really has, well, I guess this has something to do with marketing. You could, you could call this marketing. Um, and in fact, it is called marketing, which is, I think, <laughs> the problem with it. So a lot of people have probably heard of this, but here's the headline on CNN.com. Hospital chain to pay $16.5 million in kickback case involving the homeless. So Los Angeles' doctor's hospital, which has a number of hospitals actually in its system, literally went out to find homeless people to bring them in so they would have procedures that were unnecessary so they could get reimbursed for them. How's that? Pretty yeah. bad. That's sick. Yeah. It's, it's, here's That's the, a new low. No pun intended. There's a lot of things wrong with this, but here's the one that hits close to home for us. Here's how it reads. Uh, Los Angeles Doctors Hospital, Inc. agreed to plead, plead guilty to conspiring to defraud Medicare and Medi-Cal through the payment of legal kickbacks to, quote, marketers, unquote, who recruited people to act as patients. So in other words, they had this third party uh, who they paid, which are called marketers, which is awesome for us, uh, who went out to find these homeless people. I mean, this is just disgusting. How does this happen on, an, on a systemic level and people are okay with it? That's my first question. Freaky. Yeah. Well, I'm going to guess that it was <clears throat> masked as something else to a lot of people. I'm sure, obviously, some of, some knew what was going on. Some justified it probably as being morally acceptable on some bizarre ground. Um, and then I'm, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, too, a lot of the people, it was just masked as being the right thing to do somehow, or they, just, they didn't get all the information they needed. I don't know. I mean, I'm playing devil's yeah. advocate here, assuming that yeah. most people, you know, really didn't know what was going on. Um, but that's that's also bad. They should know what's going on. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't get to that point. But it's pretty disgusting. It's, pretty it's very disgusting. And here's the other thing I ask: sixteen point five million. What is that? That's like when a Wall Street investment firm like defrauds clients of hundreds of millions of dollars, and they have to pay like a five hundred million dollar fine, which sounds like a lot of money. But to them is mm-hmm. like a week's worth of profits, right. not revenue. And they're like, yeah, here you go. Here's your check. You know, Don't spend it all in one place. How are these people still allowed to operate after something like this? I don't Why know. Why aren't they just shut down for a period of time or something? That's, it's just beyond well, me. It's probably, they're probably, you know, it's the scummy approach of analyzing mm-hmm. the law and looking at what you can get away with without actually breaking the law, but just being a, a, a horrific scumbag. Um, but they broke the law blatantly. This isn't yeah, even like skirting the law. This is like, well, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, if they're uh, clearly they'll be held accountable if, you know, if, if that's the case, but I'm going to guess that they're going to try to stand the ground on some measure that they're, you know, not breaking the law. They, they admitted guilt. That's, and they're paying the fine for it. 
I'm referring to the marketer end of the deal. This is we're just talking about the health yes, system, yeah, right? Yeah, or are they both yeah. getting blamed? Oh, the, the marketer people. Whatever. Here's their statement. One of our key, one of the key goals of our new management team has been to fairly <clears throat> resolve these legacy issues with the government. So they've got new management. Well, good. So maybe the people lost their jobs. But anyway, I hope so. So can you sleep at night with that well, if, going on? Yeah, if that's not grounds yeah. for losing your job, I don't know what is. <laughs> well, nobody in Wall Street got fired, so murder. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. Jackie, you found an awesome story that you're going to lead off um, the primary part of our podcast with. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you give us the gist? Sure. It is an article I found on Fast Company, and it's called The Rise of Visual Social Media. And I think, honestly, the best intro to this is actually kind of reading the first two paragraphs here. So I'll dig in that way, and then we can discuss. So social media sites like Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest have ushered in visual marketing as the breakout trend for 2012. When it comes to their products, businesses are learning to show, not tell, and visual content sites are fueling our desire for beautiful photography and sensational design. Two years ago, marketers were spreading the maxim that, quote, content is king, unquote, but now it seems that a picture really is worth a thousand words. So it goes on to say that blogs were one of the earliest forms of social networking where people were writing 1,000 words, says Dr. William J. Ward, social media professor at Syracuse University. Social media when professor? Sorry, just had to throw those. that in there. <laughs> I've heard of a lot of those peeps. He's got a PhD in social media. So do we. <laughs> yeah. All right, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. When we moved to status updates on Facebook, our posts became shorter. Then microblogs like Twitter came along and shortened our updates to 140 characters. Now we are even skipping words altogether and moving towards more visual communication with social sharing sites like Pinterest. Which I I'm hoping he's totally agree more with. of a uh, <clears throat> like social studies type professor who maybe has claimed that title, or that the reporter got it wrong, or that. Here, I'm gonna. I found him on on LinkedIn. Let's see. Maybe it's true. I feel like I've heard of professors that are on LinkedIn. He is Dr. William J. Ward, professor of practice of social media at mm. SI Newhouse School of Public Communication, Syracuse University. I, I guess you could be a professor of of social media. I suppose yeah, that's. I, guess, fair. I mean, I guess it's just it's it, it, the. I wonder what he was before he was that. He's probably got a doctorate in communications <clears throat> of some kind, not just social media. I mean, it takes you like. Right seven years to get a doctorate so i don't know how anybody could have one in social media since seven years ago like nobody was on it but (laughs) so so there's i think this is just fascinating adam did you have some perspectives i have a couple things but i want you guys to go dig a little deeper uh you know well i guess i guess i first jumped to miss my personal preferences in terms of how i've chosen to use social media um and how my tastes and my preferences have evolved over the last, I don't know, five, six years. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I fell in love with Path when it came out. Before that, I was an early adopter of Instagram. Kind of fell off the Instagram wagon a little bit when Path came out because, um, you know, Path is like Instagram on steroids. It adds a bunch more features, but it's private. I like the privacy. Yeah. You can be private with Instagram too, but you're not you know it kind of defeats the purpose of it to to a degree i've stopped using 
uh, Flickr to an extent, um, just because nobody's there. You know, it's much. And Facebook's tools for photo sharing are have grown very robust over the last year or two, um, and the quality is much better. So I've actually just mm-hmm. you know, and that's where my that's the people who I want to see photos that I'm putting online. There, that's where they are. Um, so it's just it's interesting to watch all of this evolve um and so much of it's it's centered around photography but you know it's it's such a great way to share snippets of our lives without having to sit down and devote you know even five or ten minutes to writing you know writing a story about your day or the fact that you went to the park with your son when you could you know slap a picture of him up there um playing and you know it says you know like it says in this article you know picture is worth a thousand words you've heard that a million times Mm -hmm. um but it's so true uh, so you know, it's easy to see how we <clears throat> latch onto these uh, onto these you know I- ideas or these these approaches to social media, you know, just personally. So it uh, fortunately that makes it very easy uh, in in many regards to see how you could latch onto that and leverage it professionally. Yeah, I mean, I, from a personal perspective, I feel like, especially with Facebook, I on the other hand have really gotten into Instagram because it is more intimate and you can really control who's following you and who you're following. But I just realized after maybe more especially after reading this article that I just gravitate toward pictures, period, more on these sites, especially on Facebook. I realized how much I I have a tendency to click on articles and status updates and stuff less than I do to actually want to see these visuals and pictures people are posting. So, well, it certainly helps things stand out for one thing on on a wall when you're quickly scrolling through. Yeah. You know, the, when you when you have a chance to hop onto Facebook and you're scrolling through uh, your news feed and you know the things that jump out aren't necessarily the paragraphs of text that are not accompanied by an image. It's it's videos. It's uh, you know large collections of photos or it's articles that are accompanied by a thumbnail, mm-hmm. um, a, re- a relevant image. I uh, you know, well, and, and speaking of that, it can be extraordinarily annoying and frustrating to click into an article that that had an image accompanying it that had nothing to do with the article, but you know that's kind of what pulled you over to it. So right, right. Um, you know, there certainly are some caveats there. You got to be careful with the images that you use. Mm-hmm. Well, and th- this article tends to focus more on photos, which are obviously the dominant form of visuals. But there, I think there are others that support this. I mean, when I go through my Facebook's, you know, thread. There's photos, yeah, but there's a lot of illustration, a lot, and you're seeing the rise of the um, infographic uh, as a way to communicate. You're seeing more and more. uh, I just see lots of illustrations, and and you can see almost businesses that have risen up with certain styles, like little cartoons, almost like far side type of things. Of Mm -hmm. you know, there's just a lot of that too. So you know, I think that's all part of that same kind of trend. One thing I want to ask, Adam, I'm going to ask you this. Um, the article says something that, that made me stop a little bit. and It said, two years ago, marketers were spreading the maxim that content is king, but now it seems a picture is really worth a thousand words. We've always talked about content in terms of, yeah, picture is content. So that's, that sentence right. kind of, I think, right. is off, meaning yeah. pictures are content, videos are content. Um, right. yep. you know, so I, you know, when it says, but I think, well, wait a second, it's the same thing. However, th- is there any ramifications for SEO with this? Uh, meaning SEO is almost, uh, you tell me, I'm, you know, I'm no SEO expert, but it's based primarily on traffic and keywords. Uh, so in that sense, more written content, 
how do visuals impact SEO? Will they uh, will they hurt SEO? Or they just I don't know how, what that means. Hurt your SEO if you use more f- photos than words? Uh, does it just change the game a little bit? I mean, what what's your point on that, Adam? Um, well, you know, there's a lot of factors that influence SEO, and that's constantly changing. <clears throat> um, you know, as as you said, text is a big part of it. The con- the, the 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 text based content. Um, but there's also what seems to be impacting it more and more these days is uh, how search engines are actually factoring in some of the social aspects or the uh, the frequency of being shared or how people are interacting with it that way. Um, so that certainly is going to be beneficial for popular you know co- content that is you know primarily photo based. You know, I guess you know once you click through, assuming it's it's photos or something you're seeing on Facebook um, that may be linking back to actual content or photos that you see on Pinterest that you know once you click the image that which may be accompanied by a short you know excerpt there, uh, you know in many cases there's more content once you get to the to the page. So from an SEO perspective, there's you know benefits from both from both ends there. Um, <clears throat> it's you know there's there are certain steps to take too to help SEO. Make your images SEO friendly from including alternate attributes. It's called the alt tag that falls within the image where you actually include some text. Um, <clears throat> you can include metadata that's attached to the image, which um, not sure how much that impacts uh, the SEO rankings for an image or the content that accompanies it, but you can attach actually a lot of text to an image um, as metadata, whether it's the photographer, whether it's licensing mm-hmm. details, um, whether it's descriptive information. Uh, it's kind of crazy how much extra metadata can be can accompany an image that you never actually see. Um, so there's so many factors that go into determining uh, how an image can impact SEO, but really the biggest one is if you can increase traffic to content based on using, you know, attaching images to it, that that's that's your bread and butter. It that's gonna that's that's almost all that matters. Sure. And you know, the other thing I'll say is it talks about blogs. It kind of talks about things like a progression. Almost, I pictured like the social yeah. media version of you know the the evolution of man, where he's like crawling out of the ocean. He's a monkey, and he's hunched over, and he's Bigfoot, <laughs> and he's a man, right? Um, I, I think that's it. it it certainly progressed that way, and a lot of that's because of the technology that was available, bandwidth. Uh, you know, people are predicting as bandwidth increases uh, and you get more universal access, video is just going to, you know, dominate because it can. Uh, but I don't think the other forms are going away, but I would say they have diminished. I would say blogs yeah. have really diminished, um, both in my personal experience of producing them, following them. Uh, it just it's a certain format that at the time was really the only way to provide some expertise at that level. And now there are other ways uh, that are more creative, uh, more accessible. Blogs aren't going away. Just, I think that they, they have scaled back in their um, impact across the whole mm-hmm. spectrum. You know, I, th- okay. I agree with that in part, but what I, the way that for for me the research, the the sources that I follow you know I have a lot many more uh, podcasts that I follow these days right. primarily audio and a number of those are from people who were bloggers or still maybe are bloggers but not necessarily to the extent that they were before um, but it's a heck of a lot easier for them to sit down uh, and have an hour long podcast where they talk about the things that they would have spent hours and hours writing about mm-hmm. um, previously but 
a number of them still write, just not as much. But when they do write, it's 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 better than it was before because it's the stuff that they choose to write about is stuff that they really feel okay. I, I need to sit down. I need to collect my thoughts. Um, I can't just you know spew into a microphone for an hour. I need to research and gather my notes and pull this all together. So so the, the blog posts that I feel like I'm reading these days are of a higher quality than they were maybe before, probably because I don't have to weed through the crap that I had to weed through before. Um, a lot of the stuff that rises to the surface for me, um, primarily through Google Reader, is it just seems to be a little more a little higher quality. And it probably also is because I've kind of refined who I choose to follow. I don't have a million feeds in my reader anymore like I used to. Um, but yeah, and, and some of the people who I used to, who, you know, their blogs don't have the little snippets that they did before because a lot of that crap goes up on, I use that word in the friendliest way, (laughs) um, goes up on, you know, Twitter or Google plus or whatever Mm -hmm. it is that they choose to be using. Um, I don't follow a lot of people professionally through Facebook. So I choose to use that for personal stuff, but, um, I'm guessing a lot of people share that stuff there as well. I don't really want to, mostly I don't want that stuff. I don't want professional interests for the most part mixed into my, you know, personal interests. It's nice to be able to keep those separate to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, what I, I, I love what I do professionally. So it's, uh, there's going to be some overlap no matter what. That's true. Okay. Before we move on to the next topic, I have a question for you guys. Uh, I have some strict standards on who I accept as a friend in Facebook. This is like, me too. Real, you know, me too. very removed from what we just talked about, but it popped in my head. Uh, LinkedIn is tricky for me uh, because I get invitations to link into people that I don't know, and in some cases, there's a clear business benefit to me. Right. So an example would be a vice president of marketing at a large system uh, who heard me speak or whatever that I've never. Met and it, it couldn't. It doesn't have to be vice president. It could be a, a manager or whatever. Uh, those are folks that I, I don't know them yet. I feel like, hey, you know, what's the harm? And maybe there's there's something there. You know, the collaboration yeah. down the road or whatever. But I get a lot of other ones uh, that you know. It would be like me approaching the, that audience I just mentioned, right. and I wouldn't do that unsolicited. Uh, I wouldn't approach a vice president of marketing unless I had a reason to just to build that connection. Uh, but I get that a lot from vendors, from people that I, I'm just like, who? Students, like a student from whatever, yeah. and I don't accept them. I mean, do you think that's what, – what's your, where do you guys draw the line on that? Are you talking about LinkedIn or Facebook? I'm talking about LinkedIn yeah, there. LinkedIn. I don't get that from Facebook. I don't get hardly any invitations to be friends. Yeah. These days, it's mainly people that are yeah. haven't been on Facebook at all and are just joining, and that's few and far between. So primarily, yeah. well, I, it's it's LinkedIn is what I'm talking about in a professional setting. Yeah, I mean, if someone seems like they're semi related to my career or they you know have some sort of tie in, then I'll typically accept them. I'm just, I mean, nothing is really personal that I put out on LinkedIn, so I really don't think that there's going to be a detriment to me at all if I accept some of these people, but there have been people where I'm like, I have no clue what you do even. And I've definitely not accepted them, but I'm more liberal with my friend accepts on LinkedIn than I am on any other social media platform. I'd say. Yeah. I'm more, I mean, I, I purely, I look at LinkedIn as purely as a professional resource, which yeah. obviously it is. And I don't think any of us would look at it any differently than that, but um, 
there's just a certain amount of, you know, Facebook is easy. I mean, for me, because it's, if I don't know who it is, if it's not somebody who's been involved in my life at some degree, at some point, I, they're not going to be, if and even then, even if it was, it's, um, chances are you might not become a friend on Facebook. I'm just trying to pare that down. But mm-hmm. with LinkedIn, there's, there's a filtering process that just takes a little more time. I feel like I need to go into the person's bio, see who they are. If I don't immediately know them, I mean, sometimes it's just a click. Yeah, I know I worked with you at one point, so sure. Um, but yeah, other times it's like, I don't know who you are. Click it. It looks like somebody interesting, maybe who is involved in the design community somewhere or who is a developer. Um, then I'll bring them in or a current client or former client. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's a little more work because you need to go through and review who it is. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm so not too So I don't know. It's, and that work can be annoying because a lot of times I'll get a notification that somebody wants to invite me into their network um, and I'll let them pile up until there's like three or four of them and then I'll go through them and address them all. So I, don't really, I, I normally don't jump on those and address them immediately every time one rolls in. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe people can let us know their policies on LinkedIn. I don't really care about Facebook, but LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn is actually holding on with more value to me than Facebook by a long shot. But yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to our last topic. We got a few more minutes left. Uh, this was an article I found in uh, Becker's. <clears throat> which we've quoted before, Becker's Hospital Review. And I thought it was a very good article. It's by Virginia Tyler, who is vice president at the Camden Group, which I don't know what the Camden Group is, marketing or consulting or something. But it's called the Top 10 Non-Traditional Hospital Competitors to Consider. So I thought it would be fun to kind of go through this. Uh, I actually did – we did a paper here, and I spoke on new competitors ah, like six years ago. Uh, talking about things like at the time, which were brand new, mini clinics. Uh, there was Best Buys, EQ Life. There was medical tourism. Uh, what else was there? There was employers themselves. We'll talk. I'll touch on that in a second. Uh, but I think this is a good list to go by, and I just wanted to kind of run through it for folks. <clears throat> uh, some of them are some of them are kind of a stretch. I think it was an effort to get to ten. <laughs> You know, to have a top 10 list. But I, we could add a few, actually, to help out here. So the first is called Service Providers Not Subject to Certificate of Need. So she's really uh, talking about traditional healthcare providers, hospitals and health systems. Uh, and that's how I refer to it, too, is, is what are the competitors to the traditional hospital and health system, which is the majority mm-hmm. of folks out there who listen to us and who we talk to. So service providers not subject to certificate of need means – uh, for example, uh, she talks about New Hampshire, where the state has voted to allow specialty providers to enter the market without being subject to certificate of need laws. Do we know what certificate of need means? You can't add a hospital bed until the legislature lets you. Uh, so in New Hampshire, now you're seeing for-profit companies such as the Cancer Treatment Center of America uh, enter the market, which weren't there before. So if if those rules kind of loosen, uh, that's it's not necessarily a new type of competitor, but it's non-traditional. It's a standalone heart hospital, for example, uh, that could enter your market. Two niche providers operating in non-traditional settings. This is really about retail medicine, uh, and I think this one is potentially huge. And it's more than just mm-hmm. uh, Walmart with its mini clinics. Uh, she quotes CVS. Uh, which now owns Minute Clinic, 
Uh, but another example I would give is Walgreens, which now offers diabetes consults through its uh, pharmacists. So I think you're going to see more and more of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Three affiliates of organizations that are not current competitors, but could be. So because we live in the crazy mixed up world of healthcare, there are mergers and acquisitions all the time. Uh, and somebody you might be working with today could become a competitor tomorrow because of all of the change uh, that we're facing. So again, not that's something new, but just there's an increase in that. Four, uh, insurance companies buying providers. She quotes United Healthcare uh, and its subsidiary Optum bought Monarch Healthcare in California. Uh, I don't know if that's really a new competitor. It just might change. It might change the face of one of your competitors. I mean, Monarch mm-hmm. is still a competitor to the people it was competitors for, but how that impacts other providers in that market, for example, that use Optum, I don't know. So definitely a twist. Five, Catholic hospitals and health systems. Again, that's not new. It's not like all of a sudden we're seeing Catholic hospitals and health systems. We've been seeing them forever. Uh, Her point is, is they're uh, becoming more aggressive with acquisitions. They're infusing capital uh, through Ascension Health Network to standalone hospitals in their system. So they're ramping up. Uh, Private equity firms. So we talked about this before. I think we, we kind of talked about this with uh, was it HCA who got in trouble for, you know, running like 40% of their cath lab business was unnecessary because they're trying to drive profit. Well, private equity firms, that's all they're about is, is driving profit. And so you've got like uh, it mentions that Vanguard Health System, which is a gigantor system, uh, it's, it's majority – shareholder is Blackstone Group, which is a high-profile private equity firm. So again, it's not that Vanguard Health System is a new provider, but if your ownership is a private equity firm, it could definitely change how they show up in the market. Mm -hmm. Out-of-state growth, uh, this includes folks that are typically geographically based, but moving uh, across borders. So it gives an example of Iowa Health moving into Illinois. Uh, I think you're seeing more and more of this through what I call uh, domestic tourism. So we have medical, t- uh, t- medical tourism was defined as going overseas, right? Uh, or going right. to Mexico or somewhere or Canada to receive care. Domestic tourism is where you leave your market to go somewhere else. Uh, and because you're seeing systems like Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, trying to draw people from across the country. Uh, so while they're not necessarily moving into other areas, uh, they're trying to draw people from other areas to them. Mm-hmm. Online health consultations, Revolution Health was one of those uh, new competitors I talked about back in 2005. Uh, there's more and more of those popping up. ACOs, uh, that's just a whole new ball wax uh, that people still are trying to figure out what the heck's going on with those. But as those start popping up in your market, how are those going to change the competitive climate. Uh, and then the last one she has is other. So there's the stretch to get to 10. Uh, she doesn't really, <laughs> she doesn't really list any others, but she says basically any entity that makes it easier, better, faster, or cheaper to improve one, improve one's health is likely to be a competitor downstream. Um, mm-hmm. Examples I added to other were the domestic tourism. She doesn't have international medical tourism in here. Uh, non-traditional providers are growing. 
So um, complementary and alternative medicine types of places. Uh, you've got corporations that are investing. Uh, I think the example I used way back when was Scott's Lawn Care, which is based in Ohio, which built a multi-million dollar healthcare facility on its corporate headquarter campus and employed like two primary care docs, a staff of nurses, uh, because they wanted to control healthcare costs more directly. Mm-hmm. Is there any other ones you can think of? I was trying to like, I was going to get a pot of coffee and try to brainstorm. Well, where else could com- competition come from? You know, like <clears throat> auto companies, could they get into healthcare? Or, well, we know liquor stores already get into it since Certix had their heart healthy wine sale. <laughs> I mean, the, the argument I made back then was look, healthcare is the largest chunk of our gross domestic product, it's larger than any other industry, $2 trillion flows through healthcare. So if you want to know where the money's at, theoretically, it's in healthcare. Now, that, not, not all of that is about providing care. You know, that includes insurance companies, med tech, pharma, and everything in between. Uh, but we all know how broken our system is from a provider standpoint, or, you know, there are opportunities to do things a lot better. So, I don't know. We see like in our market and I'm sure other markets see this too, standalone emergency rooms. You know, so you could you could own the emergency uh business in your market and somebody could plop a standalone right next door to you. Uh what does that do for your you know, that's kind of a new kind of competition. So I don't know, you guys got any others? Put you on the spot. I don't know. This is no. a pretty broad list, taking into account the ex- the stuff you just mentioned, so I don't know that I'd have a lot to add or any to add beyond that. I'm sure there are some, but mm-hmm. I mean, to your point, almost anything, you know, anybody who dabbles in health or wellness on any, to any degree could on some level be considered a competitor. Right. And that seems to be a, a bandwagon that a lot of companies or organizations are jumping on these days. Yep. And I think, you know, I think people consider, usually when they sit down and say, we need to do a competitive analysis, they start ticking off the other hospitals just like them. Uh, I think some of the academic medical centers or some of the destination places like Cleveland Clinic, like we've talked about, would add to that, okay, if I'm Cleveland Clinic, i got to deal with university hospitals, which is a huge system uh, right there in Cleveland. Um, But I also have to deal with Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins and uh, University of um, Pittsburgh Medical Center, those kind of places. Uh, But I don't know that folks really consider, well, how are we going to deal with the Walgreens of the world? Or how are we going to deal with, um, yeah. you know, I know mini clinics caused a big stir when they first came out uh, because all of these things are kind of death by a thousand cuts. They start cutting into your um, funnel of patients. And if you're mm-hmm. losing patients off the front of the funnel to primary care options like Walgreens or mini clinic, uh, you're losing an opportunity to lock them in for secondary and tertiary care. So. You ought to be thinking about all of these and you ought to be doing some scenario planning about, well, where else could this stuff come from? Okay. How's that? That was a meaty podcast. (laughs) That was beefy. Beefy. Mm -hmm. Meaty and beefy. Okay. Anything else, you guys? I don't think so. Okay, cool. Well, uh, this is coming out the week of Labor Day. So by the time you hear this, Hope you had a good Labor Day weekend. 
And mm-hmm. uh, you guys. Oh, if you could hear if you could hear any thumping going on during the show, that was my two year old ch- ch- chugging along on the second floor, ab- ab- just above my head, back and forth throughout the whole show. It goes something so like this. A little. <laughs> yes, that is exactly. If you heard that repeatedly through the show, <laughs> I didn't. That was, so that was Max. Oh, that's funny. All right. Well, for Max and all the other chil- childrens, <laughs> this is Chris Bevelo. <laughs> Jackie Rotaco. And Adam Meyer. Thanks for joining us for the Arrogant Healthcare Marketing Bachelors podcast. We'll talk to you next time.